0: bit um, vocally challenged tonight, um, <clears throat> and so I hope to be able to stay within the, um, the uh, advantage of a microphone. So, um, if I get carried away, then that's when I really get damaged. Um, let me mention one thing to you that um, that I mentioned last week, and some of you, I mean, one of the things, I told you about the, the, the hiring of Jeff Sample, and uh, one of the things that I raised last week was, um, okay, when does he start, and I told you that we didn't know anything and that we might know something this weekend, and so uh, I wanted to get back with you on that in terms of when um, Jeff did come to town this weekend, as most of you, as some of you know, we had a... a staff elder retreat all weekend Uh, and Jeff was able to be with us at that which was very very um, beneficial for him to hear uh, to be a part of all that but um, we had this nice wonderful little plan oh by the way he it looks as if Lord willing he will be here the first Sunday in April Uh, we had hoped for the first Sunday in March but there's still some there's still some things that need to be worked out like the selling of the house and all that business so But that's that's the plan now is that, uh, Lord willing, he will be with us on the first Sunday of April. Um, We had this wonderful, nice little plan. Um, He was uh, to fly up. uh, His off day is on Friday. He was going to fly up on his off day and and spend the uh, night with us Friday and then fly back on Saturday and be back in town about 530 on Saturday and then, of course, be in the pulpit the next day. Uh, some of you may have, may recall that there was a little ice storm in um, Atlanta, um, so his, his flights got canceled. He got um, uh, stuck in a hotel, and before he could get to the hotel that the airline was paying for, um, he developed a stomach virus and was heaving in the airport uh, bathrooms and spent um, Sunday, uh, Monday, Sunday and Monday, uh, sick as a mule in a local hotel, um, waiting for his flight to be rescheduled. And so finally, didn't get home until Tuesday, um, but was over the little stomach virus thing. So um, the best laid plans of mice and men uh, sometimes go awry, and, and that one did. So I thought you might be interested in that little human interest story. Take your Bibles, if you will, and and, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and let me um, read you uh, the the opening two verses of a new paragraph. We won't be able to cover all this tonight, but it is kind of a little section, and um, we'll uh, just get into it and finish it up next week, Lord willing. Therefore, brethren, in verse 12, um, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, um, what you have in those two verses, I know that you're not aware of it just yet, but you have um, a very succinct summary of the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, it is succinct. It is. Um, uh, it looks rather um, simple. It is not at all simple, and I, I hope to point that out. But um, this is what you're going to find Paul teaching in the rest of the in, in the entirety of the New wow. Testament. My goodness, is everybody all right? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? Was that some kind of <laughs> a cough? Cough. I, it was somewhere between a cough and a sneeze, and that's called a. Uh, a quiz something. Um, okay, well, we hope you're all right over there, George, and um, help him out there, darling. <laughs> okay, mm, where was I? <clears throat> we keep attracting some of the strangest people to this church. <laughs> um, what you have in those two verses, as I said, is a very uh, succinct uh, summary of the doctrine of, of sanctification, or stated differently. How the Christian is to deal with the problem of sin while he is alive. While he remains in this flesh, what you get there is a strategy um, as to how we are to uh, handle and wrestle with our sin. So, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to wrestling with our sin, which I'm sure you don't have any of that, but uh, your, um, your preacher certainly does, but... In the in the battle uh, against sin, how does Paul counsel you? How does Paul? Um, what is Paul's methodology that he suggests and teaches to the people of God as to how they are to deal with their own sin? Now, gang, let, let's step back just a minute because that's what we're going um, <clears> to—that's <throat> what we're going to look at tonight. Um, really, Paul's methodology, and this is vitally important. I, you know, I know preachers say that a lot, but—and um, and I, I hope by the end of tonight you'll see why I call it vitally important. But, gang, um, when we say that we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. What do we what do we mean by that? I mean, we certainly believe that um, uh, that everything that it says is true. It doesn't contain any error, any contradictions, and all that business. Yes, we we believe that, but we believe more than that. When we say we believe in an inspired Bible, not only are we um, um, saying that we believe its message, but we believe in its logic. For instance, in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes open with, blessed are the poor in spirit. All right? The second Beatitude is, blessed are they that mourn. Now, gang, here's the point. Those two are in that order for a reason. Mourning, which is the second Beatitude, is the proper and legitimate response to poverty of spirit, which is the first Beatitude. Uh, let me give you another example. In Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 17. For it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's not, that's not the, it's, it's verse 18. Uh, Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you see that? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. We believe that when we say we believe in an inspired Bible, that the ungodliness precedes the unrighteousness for a reason. Um, that if we were to read it with the ungodliness second and unrighteousness first, you would miss out on part of its message. We not only believe the message, we believe the logic behind the arrangement. We believe um, that when it speaks scientifically, it when it speaks about science, it speaks scientifically. This, this is a book, guys, that not only is the message important, but how the, the logic behind it is important. Now, I, I hope you'll... Understand just a bit of that because that's what you're going to get tonight. You're going to get a glimpse of Paul's methodology. If you had gone to Paul's office and you'd have said to Paul, Now, Paul, you know, I just became a Christian just recently and and, um, I am really wrestling with my sin. Tell me, oh, uh, Counselor Paul, how do you do that? What is the method by which I am that you that you are counseling me to deal with my sin. How do I conduct this battle? How do I go about this wrestling? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is something in here that is that I'm telling you, m- many, if not most of you, are going to find different. That is the methodology you're going to find different. I, I I'm I'm. Predicting. See if I'm not right or maybe wrong, but alright, guys. So I'm saying that this is a succinct summary of the doctrine of sanctification, yes, but there's more. In it, you get an introduction to Paul's methodology. His how is this battle to be conducted? Alright? Now, having said that, I want you to notice, of course, that the verse 12 opens with the word Therefore, now all of you have been Bible studied, uh, have been in Bible studies before, and you've heard me, you've heard other Bible teachers talk about the importance of the word therefore. Um, well, this is a very important therefore. Uh, therefores are important, but this therefore is really important. And let me see if I can explain. In Paul's um, uh, letters, he often does this, uh, but he's not the only one. Uh, other New Testament writers do the same thing. What Paul is doing from verses twelve and from verses twelve and on, he is now exhorting us to do certain things on the basis of that which has gone before. He is about to exhort us to do something, but that doing of the something is based on something that he has just taught you. Now, what is the thing that he is exhorting you to do? It's in verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the of the body. That's the exhortation. Uh, some of your translations might have mortifying the flesh. I think the King James uses that language, mortifying the flesh. But, but that's the exhortation. He is telling you to mortify the flesh. He is telling you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Okay? That's his exhortation. But, ladies and gentlemen, you will never understand how that is properly understood if you miss the therefore. Because, you see, the exhortation of verse 13 is an application of something that he has taught you in the first 11 verses. Having taught you that in the first 11 verses, he then says, Therefore, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Therefore, there is something that precedes, ladies and gentlemen, Paul's ever exhorting you to do anything. Is he exhorting you to do something? Yes. Is there something for you to be doing? Yes. But how? Uh, How do we attack this mortifying the flesh? How do we go about putting this thing to death? He is exhorting. That's the application. But the application is based on that which is run before it. And here's, ladies and gentlemen, where the evangelical church, I think, is um, a tad off center. And I um, dare say that some of you are going to find this a little bit refreshing and new. Gang, what has he taught us? Oh, by the way, before I say that. You know, you've, you've heard the story about it in the Civil War, uh, right after the Emancipation, po- Emancipation Proclamation, which set all the slaves free. They were legally, um, officially free. And yet, slaves went on, uh, many slaves in the South continued to live just as slaves, even though legitimately, really, legally, they were free. So their, their behavior did not match... The truth about them. Okay? They were living in a way that was out of accord with that which was true about them. The truth was that they were set free, etc., etc., etc. Now, keep that kind of image in mind. Because, ladies and gentlemen, he has exhorted you to do something in verse 13. And that exhortation grows out of verses 1 through 11. The way that you are to do this, in verse 13, is based on what he just taught you in verses 1 through 11. Now, what did he teach you in verses 1 through 11? Now, before I get to that, let me just say this real quick, ladies and gentlemen. It is not, Paul's methodology is to teach something and then apply it. That's what I mean by methodology is important. It is never enough to teach something. It is never enough to simply learn something. It must always be applied. And until it is is applied, it has not been learned. We must always live what we believe. So, having taught something in verses 1 through 11, and Paul says, okay, based on that which you believe... I want you to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. All right. Now, what is it? What does putting the deeds of the body to death rest upon? What is the foundation of that appeal? The foundation of that appeal, ladies and gentlemen, is the security of the believer. That is, Paul has taught you in the first 11 verses just how safe you are. Just how little you have to fear condemnation. Having taught, 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 taught how, how marvelously safe you are as a Christian based on that safety... He then appeals to you. Okay. Now that you realize who you are, where you stand, what you are. Now you are ready to face the practical problems of waging war against the flesh, against sin. Gang. The reservoir out of which... You should draw animus for waging war against sin is a reservoir of safety and security. Hopefully, this will get a little bit clear in a moment, but gang. Um, verse 12 begins with Paul saying, We are debtors not to the flesh that is I'm under no obligation to obey the dictates of the flesh therefore there is an obligation however I'm under no obligation I'm not a debtor to obey the laws but there is an obligation I have an obligation there is to be within me a feeling a certain feeling of indebtedness and that indebtedness is spawned by gratitude over Christ's work for me, which has produced for me a lifetime of security and safety. Bathing myself in the sweetness of grace, ladies and gentlemen. That is the thing that weakened sins hold over you. Did you hear me? Bathing yourself... In the beauties and the excellencies of grace is the way Paul appeals to the people of God to go put the the flesh to death. He asks you to return to the beauties and the excellencies of the gospel that has has described your safety, your position, and, and, and based on that... He asks you to then mortify the flesh. It is focusing on Christ's finished work for us. That softens our hearts and and weakens sin's hold on me. That's how Paul is telling us to do it. How are you going to battle sin? Go focus on what Jesus did for you. How are you going to wage war on the flesh? Go enjoy the beauties and excellencies of grace. How is it that you're going to win the war over those sinful habits? It is to go back and enjoy all over again how safe and how secure I am as a believer. Our debt is to love. It is to love and to... Sin's power... Loses its attraction over you, ladies and gentlemen, when you are overcome with verses one through eleven. Do you you see what I'm gang? I got a hold of that. Paul's method of dealing with the people of God as they are trying to carry on this battle against sin. What does how does he approach you? He says, okay. Let me tell you how marvelously safe you are. Now, because you are, therefore, put to death at ease of the flesh. There is not one hint of fear, judgment, guilt, which is the evangelical modus operandi, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to dealing with the deeds of the flesh. He says, do you understand how safe you are? Now, focus on grace and love, that indebtedness to grace, and having that bathe your soul, put the flesh to death. Do you see how different? Gang, most Christians that I run into, and and most preaching—I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say most. I, some preaching um, tries to fight sin with kind of a a, a a law-centered conscience. We tell them, or you think, you think, uh, okay. Um, if I do that, God is going to get me or, um, I'll get caught. If I do that, that would even be worse because I couldn't stand public humiliation. Um, or if I do that, I'll hate myself in the morning. Well, gang, that all may be true. All of those things may be true of you, but I'm saying to you, that approach is an inadequate method by which Sin is dealt with. You will never succeed in dealing with the sins of the flesh by guilting yourself into it. Or some kind of preoccupation with a law-centered, law-focused conscience. That's not how Paul does it. Do you see that here, ladies and gentlemen? He has taught you for 11 verses. How gloriously safe you are. And and how to glory in that safety and security. Now, he says, now that you've drunk deeply at this fountain of grace, go fight your sin. But he doesn't say, you keep doing that and God's going to get you. You keep doing that and uh, you're going to get caught. You keep doing that, and you'll just feel terrible in the morning. That's not how he operates. That's how the evangelical church operates. But that's not how Paul operates. Paul teaches you this glorious truth about who you are. And then he tells you, go enjoy that. Might it bathe and wash through your soul? You are a debtor to love and grace. But you are not a debtor to law. Go bathe yourself in the provisions of Christ for you. And then, once that has overcome you, I shouldn't say it like that. I shouldn't say, when you you finally get there, then go back. No, no. The the, the demand is ever-present. Put the deeds of the flesh to death. But how do I do that? I first understand the great provisions that have been made for me in Christ Jesus. Gang, um, again I say, all those things might be true. You might get caught. You, um, you, um, you may feel awful in the morning. But that is an approach that is inadequate for the, for the, the battle that you and I wage over the flesh. It all involves, or that approach involves, a, a sense of fear as the deterrent. But instead, what you find here in Romans 8, as, do, do, you, do you see, ladies and gentlemen, he teaches the, these wonderful things in 11 verses. And then he says, all right, now you're ready to hear this based on what I just taught you. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Do you see his logic? Do you see his method? Do you see how Paul would counsel you? He is asking you, ladies and gentlemen, to use the logic of the gospel on yourself. Is this how I respond to love? That's the way I'm supposed to to approach the battle. How do I respond to being loved? Tell me, ladies. When are you the most... Properly responsive to your husband. When you're afraid of him. Or when you know how marvelously you're loved. By the way. That's true of us men too. But we're not so afraid of you. Tell me. When, when do you make the most amount of strides in the health in your marriage? When you dread. Oh my husband's going to catch me. He's going to get me. Or. Are, are the strides made when there is a confidence and an enjoyment and a and a, a a pleasure taken in being loved? Gang, I'm telling you, the evangelical world says to its audience, "Y'all ought to stop that sinning. And if you don't stop that sinning, God's going to get you." And I'm telling you, that is foreign. To the New Testament here's Paul's method you square that with how you've been trained now I've got 11 minutes left and I, I probably am going to use the whole 11 minutes reading you two quotes they're brief quotes but they illustrate what I'm trying to say and they illustrate it better than I've said it I think um, the first one is from Stephen Charnock I don't know whether you've ever heard of Stephen Charnock, um, but he's addressing this very thing. And I'm going to I want to read it slowly and I want I want to I want you to get it because he's saying it better than I say it. He is contrasting this this law centered conscience and a a logic he's a law centered conscience versus Using the logic of the gospel on ourselves. Okay? A legalistic conviction of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice, mainly. But an evangelical conviction of sin comes from a sense of God's goodness and grace... Did you get that? He says, over here on the one hand, a legalistic conviction of sin, that comes from a consideration of God's justice. If I do that, God's going to get me. In contrast to that, he says, an evangelical conviction of sin comes from a sense of God's goodness and grace. Is this how I respond to love? Says an evangelical conviction of sin. Now, that's just the first sentence. He's still comparing. A legally convicted person, that's one who's got this legalistic conviction of sin, a legally convicted person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as roaring as that of a lion. I have provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. Opposed to that, or in contrast to that, but an evangelically convicted person cries, I have incensed a goodness that is like the dropping of the dew. I have offended a God who comes to me as a loving friend. Is my heart made of marble or iron to be so hard? Do you see the difference in those two? One has come to a place of conviction because of this dread, this, this, this concern for justice, whereas this other option is uh, the concern that comes from a sense of God's goodness and grace. I'm telling you, gang, here in 1213 of Romans 8, Paul is appealing to you to go back and enjoy your position. And then from that position of safety and security, go wage war on the flesh. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that We're not to wage war on the flesh. Oh, yes, 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 But what is our approach? What is our methodology? How do we carry that out? Well, based on what I see Paul doing, he's reasoning with his audience. And before he exhorts them to deal with their sin, he first tells them how safe they are. Is that the way you've been dealt with over the years? I've said to you, ladies and gentlemen, I've done this before in here. I've said that there are are several motivations to go live a holy life. One of them is fear. One of them is guilt. One of them is security. What do you see here? What do you see Paul doing in the first 11 verses of Romans 8 before he exhorts you and appeals to you to deal with your sin? Let me read the other one. This is from John Owen. John Owen says, What have I done? What love, mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled upon? Is this the return I make to the Father for His love? To the Son for His blood? To the Spirit for His grace? Do I thus repay the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with Him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, how John Owen is dealing with himself, applying the logic of the gospel to his sin, Never once do you hear him say, oh, no, I've blown it. I've blown it and, and, you know, there is going to be the piper to pay. It's going to be hell for me. Gang, that is not New Testament Pauline methodology when it comes to sanctification. This is what Paul teaches throughout the New Testament. He first makes sure you understand that that the... The eternal dimension of your soul is a settled thing. And once you are enjoying the beauties of that, He then turns to you and says, Therefore, put to death the deeds of the body. But He never turns to you and says, If you don't, You're going to get it. I don't know where that came from, ladies and gentlemen. I just know this. It didn't come from the Apostle Paul. Because because Paul knows the greatest motive to holy living is a thoroughgoing understanding of the beauties and excellencies of grace. And once that's understood, it is. It lessens sin's power and attraction over us. And we cry out with a John Owen, Is this how I pay love? Is this how I respond to the finished work of Christ? Am I I that hard that I would pursue this? Gang, I am saying to you, if your method is one of appealing to a a law-focused conscience, it will never be enough to rid you of your love of sin. The only thing that will weaken the bonds of sin over you is a grasp of just how safe you are. In view of that, therefore, Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Our Father, I pray that you will make clear what I have made unclear. And that your people will find great delight in being instructed in a New Testament Pauline. Approach to holy, godly living. Yes, indeed, Lord. All of us long to walk in the beauty of holiness. But how we get there is important to Paul as well. And so, might your people be able to bathe their souls in the the great excellency of the finished work of Christ and their security in that position might that security drive them to a greater hatred of their sin and an application of the gospel to our souls we um, we have so much oh god to correct and I pray that this might help undo false notions of what it means to live a holy life. We're not debtors to the flesh, Lord. We're not debtors to law. We're debtors to love. We're debtors to love and grace. And so with that, that sense, that feeling of indebtedness to grace, empower us now to go lay the axe to the root of sin in our souls. We we commit ourselves to that, Father, praying for the power of the Holy Spirit in the pursuit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.